Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get a little bit critical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about the second most popular film critic of all time. The Angry Video Game Nerd. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and number one is obviously the Nostalgia Critic. <laughs> no, we're talking about Pauline Kael. And Will, you picked this topic. Why do you think Pauline Kael is still important in the world today? Well, I mean, she's... Probably the most influential non-Roger Ebert film critic there's ever been. Ah, you just spoiled who the number one was. <laughs> Richard Roper. <laughs> but, but what do you think about Pauline Kael? Pauline Kael is when you get into film, it's impossible not to run into her. Mm-hmm. Like, people will talk about her famous review for Last Tango, her famous review for... Um, Bonnie and Clyde. I actually went out only a few years ago and bought like seven of her books at a Hollywood bookstore or whatever. Remember Hollywood Canteen? Yes. When it was closing down. And I started reading them. I'm like, yeah, you know, she's passionate. And while I was reading it, the things that I really liked about her was very informal style of writing. That got criticized a lot. Mm. She's very passionate about a lot of stuff. And you know what? She's a smart critic. Like, a lot of the time she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, there are very few critics who I think have actually had a big influence on the art form that they're criticizing. Uh, Roger Ebert might be one, mm-hmm. but Pauline Kael was somebody who kind of in the early 70s, late 60s was viewed as a bit of a kingmaker. Her influence was very uh, crucial on the careers of the directors she championed, like Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma. Uh, and there are certain movies that... When you talk about them, you can't talk about them without talking about Pauline Kael's reviews. I'm thinking of Last Tango in Paris, where she famously compared its premiere to being of equal importance to when Stravinsky first performed The Rite of Spring. And with her review of Bonnie and Clyde, she actually got a reviewer fired, pretty much. Yeah, so uh, Bosley Crowther was the most influential film critic in America at that time. He uh, wrote for the New York Times, and he was somebody who really could make or break a small or independent or arty film. Uh, Bosley Crowther was a bit of a fuddy-duddy. He didn't like uh, a lot of the really interesting movies that were coming out in the 60s, like Godard, Kurosawa. There was a a funny review that Bosley Crowther wrote of an Andy Warhol movie. I think it might have been Chelsea Girls, whatever the first Andy Warhol movie was that opened above 14th Street. In his review, he said something to the effect of, well, now that the Warhol gang is playing in a theater with carpets, we really need to stop this. And his negative review of Bonnie and Clyde made such huge waves. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Bonnie and Clyde actually came out and then kind of slowly disappeared. And Pauline Kael's review actually pushed it back into second run, where it was way more popular. And not only that, but it was kind of like the the satellite critics who were influenced by her, like Roger Ebert, uh, started to review it really well. So Pauline Kael, even though she would have been in her 40s or maybe even her 50s at this point when her career was really starting off, she was regarded as a real fresh new voice for a new kind of cinema. But the things that I don't like about Pauline Kael, she's a bully. An intellectual bully. And and a, and a bully in person, too. Yeah, and she's a contrarian. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, when I, w- I think I discovered Pauline Kael at probably the right age, or maybe even before the right age. I discovered her at the library when I was in middle school, like maybe grade six. And at that point, my experience with f- film criticism had largely been like Leonard Maltin's guides and Siskel and Ebert. Mm-hmm. And uh, reading Pauline Kael, not only was the prose so much richer than what I'd seen before, uh, 
I had a, had a hard time getting a read on her intellectually because she was such a contrarian. It was kind of, I, I think when you're in grade six, you're still figuring out, like, what does the world think about things? And so it was so surprising to see her bizarre contrarian takes on so many movies. And she makes you, if you read her work at that age, feel smarter than everybody else. Oh, sure. Because that's how she portrays herself. Well, the way that she always writes in the second person, where she's saying, you're watching this film and you're thinking this, uh, you almost you kind of feel implicated in it. So I think when you're in grade six, it seems almost flattering. It's like, yeah, Pauline and me, we're, <laughs> we're thinking this. And then when you get older, you start to think, stop telling me what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, because she, uh, she famously would say that she is right about a movie. Like, she would give no concessions with anybody else. Right, and she would famously never watch a movie a second time. There was an introduction in the biography written about her where she did a um, panel at a university, and someone asked, well, you didn't even see, like, Persona twice? It took me, like, four times to get it. She's like, nope, just watched it once. She did see McCabe and Mrs. Miller a second time. I think that's the only one. Uh, you know, like, what a haughty thing to say. Like, I only watch movies once. And her argument was like, well, because there's so many movies to watch. I can't watch them twice. Yeah, and she, and she would say things like, uh, oh, I, I always felt like I got it on the first time. I mean, to me, one of the great, even though I'm f still fairly young, uh, w one of the great pleasures in life or in movie-going life, is seeing how a movie can evolve and change for you over time. And we'll talk about this critic a little bit later, but Andrew Saris famously had a review of 2001, which he went back and saw a second time, and changed his opinion on, while Pauline Kael would not move on 2001. Andrew Saris, who was kind of her big adversary in the New York film scene, uh, would often change his opinions on critics. In his book, uh, the American Cinema, he talked about not liking Billy Wilder and Stanley Kubrick, and both of them he revised his opinions on. Because that's what happens, you know, to human beings, is that you see something at one point in time, you form an opinion, which most of the time you think is the universal opinion, yeah. and then you see it a little bit later and you change your mind. That happens to me all the time. If I see a movie that I saw 10 or 15 years ago and I feel the same way about it, it feels like, huh, that, you know, <laughs> like, how is that possible? Yeah. I mean, you were a film critic professionally. Yeah. I was a film critic as an amateur. So how embarrassing is it to go read those reviews 10 years ago? Oh, awful. I mean, my prose style in those reviews is so embarrassing. I, I was trying to go for the relaxed formality of some someone like an Ebert or a Kale, and it really just comes across as like smug garbage. <laughs> it's like I, I read that stuff and it's like, stop being so pleased with yourself. And you don't say that when you read your work now? I'm sure I will. Give in, it 10 in, years. In another 10 years. <laughs> um, but we talked about how we were going to read a few of her, like, major articles. And one of them that uh, really caught my attention was Trash Art and the Movies. Mm -hmm. Which, how would you summarize this article? One of the things that got Pauline Kael famous was Andrew Saras, her rival critic, who later wrote for The Village Voice, imported to America the auteur theory, mm -hmm. which the critics at the Caillou du Cinema in France had developed. So like, uh, it was Truffaut, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote an article called, I don't remember what the name is, <laughs> um, where he basically took down what was called Le Cinéma du Papa, which is like your dad's cinema. Right. Or Le Cinéma de Qualité, which right. is quality cinema. And uh, the Cahiers du Cinema critics, even though they liked people like Bergman and, and Wells and the real, uh, the people you would think of as auteurs, 
Uh, they were particularly interested in kind of the genius of the system. Directors who would be under contract at a studio would get assigned a script and against all odds would insert their personality in it. And you could see that internal tension between them and the material in any film they made. So like Howard Hawks, Hitchcock, mm-hmm. and tons of other filmmakers like that. Usually the lower on the totem pole they were in the studio system, that's what interested them the most. Like you said, the tension between having to deliver a product and their own personality. So... Andrew Saris brought that over to America, and he, even in his articles for Film Quarterly, would create a pantheon of directors. And Pauline Kales responded with an article called Circles and Squares. Saris and Kale, I think, were coming from a similar place, because they were both against snobbery towards American movies. And to a lesser extent, they were against the assumption that foreign arthouse films were automatically better than American movies. So Kale wrote in one of her essays that uh, if Truffaut's The Bride Wore Black came out with Brock Hudson and Lana Turner people would dismiss it as being trash. But the sense that I get in reading this article too is that she's like, hey, it doesn't need to be art to be entertaining. Yeah. But it's also really dumb and you shouldn't treat it as art. Well, that's the difference. Uh, Saras wanted to elevate American genre films as art and Kale is saying, hey, we can appreciate them just as trash. And in fact, it does a disservice to real art to say that a lesser Raoul Walsh film is on the same level as Ingmar Bergman. What an arrogant opinion. As I was reading her essays, I was feeling a little bit persuaded by it. Were you? Even though, like, Sarah's one, as people who like movies, we think of things in auteurist terms. I mean, the, the negative legacy of that is there are now movie posters that say from visionary director Zack Snyder. <laughs> and, like, we just assume, I think we're just led to assume that directors are auteurs, even when they're not. I was hearing somebody say recently, Recently, I'm really fascinated by the career of Martin Campbell. I am fascinated by the career of Martin but Campbell. But what's fascinating about it? He's just a journeyman who lucked into two or three good well, movies. He has a particular style that you can see throughout his films, no, whether it be in No Escape, uh, yeah. Casino Royale, Edge of Darkness, which was remade from a TV show he made in Britain. There's a lot to dig in there. Okay, listen, if you say so, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen his movies. All I see is like a decent craftsman who is only as good as the material he's given. There's a weird you know, pull here where on one hand, I hate academia and what it represents and the kind of theorizing and rising stuff up that doesn't deserve it to have Mm -hmm. it. And on the same time, I'm like, but I like these dumb things and I want to talk about them in an interesting way, which Pauline Kael in this article, she's saying you could enjoy it. And there's a really nice passage where she goes, you know, sometimes a movie can be bad and there'll be one good line or one good performance or one good scene. But at the same time, she's saying this is dumb. Don't bother to give it the attention these other people are giving it. At the same time, a lot of her early essays are marked by a certain anti-intellectualism towards Mm -hmm. kind of something like last year at Marianne Bad or the real kind of rigorous art house cinema that was coming at the time. She was sort of making fun of bourgeois audiences for going into these movies, feeling bored, and then assuming, oh, well, it must it must be art. She has a famous review uh, of the movie Showa, which is... Which is a horrible review, in my it's opinion. It's so bad, where she's definitely taking this contrarian position and trying to mold it into 
something that would be believable in any sort of way. Well, basically, it comes down to the idea that Shoah, which is Claude Landsman's eight-hour film about the Holocaust, she basically just finds it boring. And uh, she objects to Landsman's thesis, which is that there's anti-Semitism everywhere. She finds it bullying. And there's a passage in it that I think is just so beyond the pale of idiocy. She says, The film is diffuse, but Landsman is blunt-minded. He's out to indict the callous. If you were to set him loose, he could probably find anti-Semitism anywhere. The problem is that the film is about the Holocaust. (laughs) And, like, he's looking for anti-Semitism among, like you know, the sites where the Holocaust was, (laughs) was undergone. And he's in, in Holocaust among the people who were in the immediate proximity of those sites. Pauline Kael's reviews, a lot of the time, what I feel is her struggling with looking smarter than the movie, whether she likes it or not. Sure. So even at the end of that trash art in the movies article, there's a final paragraph where she's like, you know, I'm getting into more documentaries now. (laughs) I want to see real faces and real stories and facts. That is the nadir to me of someone that likes movies. Yeah, but when I say that I find some of it persuasive, I'm thinking of In Circles and Squares, she highlights a part in Andrew Saris's essay where he says, oh, isn't it interesting? I saw this early, not very good Raul Raul Walsh picture where there was a scene in it, and then I saw that he repeated the same scene 10 years later in High Sierra, and those are the joys of (laughs) auteurism. And she said, well, first of all, people crib from themselves all the time, and you don't need a theory to justify that. And second, Secondly, you're just creating a justification for the fact that you want to watch shitty movies. <laughs> I mean, you don't need a justification. You watch them because you enjoy them. Sure. That's my philosophy of Man life. Man of the people, Justin <laughs> yeah, just All right, I'll be doing a synopsium of Martin Campbell on uh, <laughs> May. So Andrew Saris is a critic I genuinely like. I love him, yeah. His book, The American Cinema, I was flipping it through, through it yesterday, and it's still packed with information that you're like, oh, I've never heard about this director or this fil- or this film. Well, I heard uh, Roger Ebert say once that when he was a young critic, he thought of Pauline Kael as his muse in terms of his pro style, but Andrew Saris was his roadmap. I think Andrew Saris was more useful for our understanding of film history. But at the same time, like you were saying, that once he took that auteur dogma and he stuck to it, it kind of forced him into some weird positions. Well, the other thing is, the, the auteur critics at this time were saying that uh, a film by an auteur is automatically more interesting than a film by a journeyman filmmaker, even if, you know, the film by a journeyman filmmaker is better. Uh, and in some way, I can be sympathetic with that because I would rather watch a bad Terry Gilliam movie than a good Ron Howard movie. Yes, I, I, I find agree that with interesting. You. At the same time, it's kind of an indefensible position. Ron Howard is very passionate about his work. You know, he looks like a nice man, and he's made several good movies. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be the uh, Andrew Saris in this situation. You can be the Pauline Kael. But also, in the 60s, the auteurs that they were highlighting, like uh, John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock, were making some of their worst movies. So it was becoming a harder and harder position to make tenable. And they were picking really great directors. I mean, John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock, you can look at their work objectively now and be like, well, that is amazing. Sure. But you know, I was just reading uh, Peter Bogdanovich's book about John Ford, where he interviewed John Ford about all his movies. This was a book that was published in the 70s, I think. And for basically the first half of his career, every movie, it's John Ford saying over and over again, yeah, the studio gave me that script and I thought it was terrible. I did what I could with it. (laughs) John Ford would be the first one to say that he's not an artist, even though looking at his movies, he obviously was. Yeah. If you took the top half of John Ford's filmography, he's clearly an artist. You know, uh, did you see the new documentary De Palma? No, I didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, Brian De Palma says in it, you know, you can say what you like about the later Hitchcock movies, but 
the movies that people remember from a filmmaker are the ones they made in their 30s, their 40s, and their 50s, and there are almost no exceptions. <laughs> Maybe Kurosawa is an exception. Well, I think that George Romero and Dario Argento are going <laughs> to knock it out of the park the next movie. Mm-hmm. Zack Snyder is kind of like a fine wine. He'll mature <laughs> into it. Pauline Kael had an interesting career that um, she kind of, like you said, blossomed later in life. So, first of all, some biographical details about Pauline Kael. She grew up on a farm, uh, the daughter of uh, Jewish immigrant parents. I believe they were Jewish immigrant parents. Struggled during the Depression. Uh, She went to college, but was unable to finish her degree because she didn't have, like, the $35 to get her tuition in the last year. Like, she was just $35 short. The anecdote goes that she didn't have enough money, so she spent that semester going to see Broadway shows with Mm -hmm. the money she did have. She She went to New York and kind of got immersed in the Bohemia there, went to San Francisco, was in the Bohemia there, had this interesting uh, habit of falling in love with men who turned out to be gay. (laughs) Yep. Um, So to the point where it seems that by all accounts, when she actually started her film criticism career in earnest, she was basically done with romance. And her social life was that she would kind of surround herself with acolyte critics. Called the Paulettes. Called the Paulettes. Anyway, she made her living doing anything, sewing, you know, cleaning toilets, whatever. She was a nanny at some point. Mm -hmm. And then she started writing blurbs for the movies at a revival house. And then that led to her doing reviews on the radio, her doing freelance reviews. She got a job in the 60s as a staff critic for McCall's, but famously was fired because she gave a caustically negative review to The Sound of Music. Where she kind of takes it to task for creating a a sheen of artificiality over everything. She was not a big fan of things like MGM musicals or even she talked about how she didn't like Westerns very much when she was younger Mm -hmm. because of this artificial world that they were creating. She was all about stuff being new and feeling fresh Mm -hmm. and bringing something to cinema that hadn't been seen before. Mm -hmm. And in in Westerns, she also was not particularly into people like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, the kind of macho uh, Western stars. She didn't like that. But anyway, uh, she was hired by William Shaw, the editor of The New Yorker. And she was an odd fit for The New Yorker because at that time, The New Yorker was... How would you describe The New Yorker? Uh, for back when she started working on it? Yeah, well, I could not describe it, Will. <laughs> uh, it, it was kind of like... Hoity-toity? Yeah, yeah. It was real snobs against the slobs situation. <laughs> I mean, look at the, what the logo of The New Yorker is. It's a fucking guy in a top hat and a monocle. And with some interruptions, uh, for, the, for the first 10 or 15 years, Pauline Kael wrote film criticism for six months of the year, alternating with Penelope Juliet who was not as gifted a writer. Then she went to Hollywood for six months. And she was wooed there by uh, Warren Beatty, Mm -hmm. uh, who really liked her after her review of Bonnie and Clyde, because it basically saved his film. Yeah, but I think most people would agree that her peak years as a critic were in the 70s. Yes, and that's linked principally to the emergence of the Hollywood new wave. Mm -hmm. Um, People like Robert Altman. She wasn't that interested um, when she started as a film critic, like you mentioned, of films of like Alain René, but she was a big fan of Jean-Luc Godard. That's true. Up to a certain point. Yeah, she she liked the kind of uh, freshness and coolness of Jean-Luc Godard. She wasn't so much into the kind of formally rigorous and challenging foreign cinema. She liked kind of the freshness and uh, fun of Godard. Yeah, the new stuff, doing things that you haven't seen before. And you know, oddly enough, she really did not review, I mean, after the 70s, very many foreign films at all. It, particularly in the, in the 80s, the only foreign filmmaker that I can think of that she got on board for was Pedro Almodovar. Who's huh. kind of the, you know, the most passionate of those uh, art house directors. And 
like you mentioned before, there were kind of acolytes that formed around her, the Paulettes. And who are those? David... David Denby, David Edelstein, Owen Gleiberman for a little while was a Paulette. And these critics kind of had to get behind her and her opinions. Well, it was a, it was seemed to be a weird dance that they played because, first of all, Pauline Kael liked acolytes. She liked having people around her that she could gossip with and kind of hold sway over uh, and be influential and be a mentor to. At the same time, she didn't want writers who were, who were slavishly imitative of her. So she dropped David Denby. Because he was too close to the way that she wrote. Right. But then she would also drop critics if they swerved too far from her opinions. That's crazy. Why, why would anybody put themselves in that kind of position? Yeah, it's terrible. What about the Will Sloan acolytes that are, um, you know, they need to share right their Right in opinion? to the Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> if you would like to be a Sloanite. And we can, yeah, we can form a little community. <laughs> but, you know, Paul Schrader, before he became the writer of Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull, he was a critic uh, who was under her wing and he described it as being like it was like empire building on her part where she would recommend critics for papers across the country and try to get editors to hire them so that like pretty soon we'll have the whole eastern seaboard or whatever (laughs) but i don't even think that there's really pauline kale like writers writing for newspapers at all i mean the newspaper is dead Mm-hmm. It's all moved to the internet where that kind of, I don't know, everyone's kind of writing like her, either contrary in opinions that are well, no basis I mean, in reality. Lo- lots of people are just like writing like her only in the sense that there's, they're kind of like uh, formless. <laughs> <laughs> Verbose. Yeah. Numbskulls. Uh, that's not, I'm not saying that Pauline Kael was dumb. I was just saying I disagreed with her a lot. You know, you know the funny thing is, uh, even Pauline Kael, I think, is obviously enormously influential and very popular, but I think she was most popular with people who aren't critics. Mm. Do, do you think that's the case? Because her stuff, yeah, her be- stuff is really, really fun to read. And she kind of affects a certain tone towards the movies that is kind of hip and knowingly superior. Yeah, but, but that's what I don't like. I don't but, like but, reading things that are but, knowingly superior. But then, superior. I mean, at, at the same time, like, she could, like, really fall for a movie in a way that gets you excited. But somebody like Andrew Saris brings... Who I also disagree with a lot. Even American cinema, you're like, what are you talking about? He brings, uh, I think, a little more reverence to the medium as an art form, which I think critics are more interested in. Pauline Kael would accuse him of trying to turn criticism into a science and not an art, which it should be. But he brings certain dogma into it that I think is interesting to people who are critics. Yeah, I don't really like dogma that much. Mm-hmm. I think that it's something that you get trapped in and then you have weird-ass opinions yeah. that you can't get out of. Because no, of none of these critics this. are perfect. No, none opinion. of them are. But <laughs> Except me. <laughs> so, like anyone who writes on things that are current, or you could say pop culture, Pauline Kael had a bit of a decline late in her career. She went to Hollywood. Warren Beatty kind of lured her there he said instead of working on this working at the system from the outside you can change it from within so she went over with one of her favorite directors james toback uh director of fingers director of fingers and a a regular a close friend of hers after she gave fingers a very favorable review she went over to be kind of like the executive producer on at paramount of his film love and money she wasn't very good at studio politics uh, shocking <laughs> yeah yeah she she wasn't quite used to the fact that there are so many cooks in the kitchen and you know everybody has their opinion everyone has their and opinion. you know for someone like pauline kale who thinks her opinion is golden that's really difficult to work with and james toback was a director who he would have the script but the script was just a blueprint from him and it would evolve on the set and pauline kale wanted the script you know really rigorously figured out in advance so eventually james toback fired her from the movie and then she got a lower position working at Paramount under Don Simpson, the, the super producer of, <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer of, and Don Simpson. of Beverly Hills Cop. 
basically reading scripts and advising on them. And Don Simpson was not told that he had to have Pauline Kael working for him and basically made it a principle that he would reject whatever she said to him. So she was only there for about five or six months and it was a very humiliating experience for her. And also she gave some, after she got back to the New Yorker, she gave, she wrote this thing about the Don Simpson production Top Gun that I think is just so great. She called it the self-referential commercial. Top Gun is a recruiting poster that isn't concerned with recruiting, but with being the poster. That's great. <laughs> That's good stuff. But anyway, after she got back from Hollywood, Penelope Juliet had been let go and she was film critic all year. But the problem is the movies just weren't good enough for her to write about. Really. Uh, and it feels like she just wasn't passionate about it anymore. It's a little sad to see her really stumping for movies in the 80s because they weren't as good as the movies she was stumping for in the 70s. And you can see her like almost kind of tricking herself into mustering up the enthusiasm. Especially if she wasn't reviewing foreign films. Can you imagine reviewing only Hollywood films in the 80s? Yeah, except for Pedro Almodovar. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... It's just not as interesting. Nah. And eventually she just retired. Uh, Partly because she had Parkinson's Mm -hmm. and partly because she wasn't enthusiastic about the movies anymore. There's an introduction to the script book Rushmore, where Wes Anderson talks about how he called her up and basically forced her to watch Rushmore. And she didn't understand the movie and couldn't understand what he was going for. It's kind of a mean article that he wrote because uh, he says, he says, oh, one of your favorite actors, Bill Murray, is in it. And she goes, who's that? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, picking on someone that's a lot older. Yeah. (laughs) And expecting them to deliver on the things that you fell in love with when they were younger and writing. And when Pauline Kael started, she was in her 50s. So Mm. we could probably also get into the fact that uh, her, her pans could be incredibly vicious to the point where she would, you know, sometimes she'd be very friendly with directors and then she would pan their movies and basically there would just be an intense falling out. Well, Pauline Kael is often talked about being a huge brown noser mm-hmm. when it comes to Hollywood people that she would meet in person. Yeah, but then she would review some of their movies. Uh, she reviewed, she was, Pauline Kael was friends with Woody Allen, and then she reviewed his movie Stardust Memories, which she interpreted probably correctly as being a semi-autobiographical film. The last line of her review was, if Woody Allen finds success very upsetting and wishes the public would go away, this picture should help him stop worrying. Ooh. And Woody Allen stopped in inviting her to his New Year's parties. And then Paul Schrader, they'd had a falling out because she wanted him to to work as a critic at a Seattle paper and he didn't want to go. Yeah. And he became uh, a screenwriter. She reviewed Schrader's second film as a director, Hardcore, and she said, several veteran directors are fond of calling themselves whores, but of course what they mean is that they give the bosses what they want. They're boasting of their cynical proficiency. For Schrader to call himself a whore would be vanity. He doesn't know how to turn a trick. Ugh. Brutal. That's just like a personal attack. That has nothing to do with the movie or anything like that. But what's funny is when directors like Woody Allen and Paul Schrader wouldn't talk to her after that, she couldn't understand why or would profess not to understand why. She's like, you know, it's just just film criticism. But her stuff is personal attacks. She's not taking the movie for face value. Yeah. I really like hardcore too. Uh, it's a bad movie that I enjoy. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about that on our Paul Schrader episode. I would do it, yeah. (laughs) Who you're not a big fan of, if I recall. I like Paul Schrader. Uh, I think he's a great screenwriter and an okay director. So let's get into more of a general question of criticism. Do you read a lot of criticism? Yeah, sure. What, like, what do you like today to read? Because it's all on the internet now. 
Oh, I mean, there are lots of critics I like. I mean, my favorite critics are oftentimes the ones who aren't the most active anymore. Jonathan so, Rosenbaum? Like, Jonathan Rosenbaum, Jay Hoberman, of critics who are still active. You know, I read Sight and Sound every month. I read Film Comment every month. Like, I really like essay type stuff. I'm not a fan of, like, the star rating or the, like, giving things a numerical or scientific value when it comes to this movie is good or bad. I want to get it out of the review. Yeah, I mean, that's for people who don't really pay much attention for film criticism and just want to know what movie they should see. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know the plebes, not like <laughs> us. But at the same time, a lot of these plebes... Like, I have friends who say, well, I don't read film criticism because I don't... Maybe I don't agree with them. And yeah. that's not the point of what it is. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be able to make up your own mind when you're reading this kind of stuff. Like, if you read an Armin White review... I and love them. you go, this makes no sense. Then you should be like, well, I don't agree with his opinion because it's obviously coming from an insane person. You know what I love about Armand White? Armand White is like, obviously, you know, he's like a cartoon contrarian critic where if a movie's getting <laughs> positive reviews, he will automatically give it thumbs down. Um, and if a movie's getting bad reviews, vice versa. Um, and, and he writes these kind of really long, kind of bullying pseudo-intellectual articles Um uh, he writes for the National Review now. Armand White is a gay black Republican, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, and he writes for the National Review. You're a garbage man! <laughs> yeah, he said that to Steve McQueen, the director. Uh, he writes for the National Review, and I love like the National Review's like conservative readership reading Armand White and trying to figure out what the deal is with him. <laughs> like Being like, this sort of makes sense, and not knowing the whole history of him. Uh, doesn't he write for that other publication? The- he writes for Out Magazine as well. <laughs> so, like, he, he must be the only person who writes for the National Review and Out Magazine. What's your opinion of people thinking that criticism now to be able to make an impact has to be contrarian. It has to pos- uh, posi- have a uh, position. This sounds like a straw man argument. I'm not I'm not sure anybody would say this. <laughs> I read that all the time. Well, I mean, there's kind of like a hot take culture now, yeah. you know. Uh, Where, for people who don't know, if you're finding this in 100 years from now in the archives of Canada, uh-huh. a hot take is just going against the grain. I mean, I, I would rather not have a bad faith assumption on why people are <laughs> writing stuff. Because uh, they're all dumb. That's what I could see it in your eyes. That's what you're you trying to You know what? Say. I would like to take this on a case by case basis. There, <laughs> th- there are writers who I like, and there are writers I don't. And, and well, what writers that you uh, enjoy that you think have terrible opinions? Pauline Kael, a lot probably. I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. The thing about Pauline Kael is I don't think we've really conveyed uh, what it's like to read her pieces. She's kind of a Lester Bangs of film criticism, where reading the piece really feels like her wrestling with a movie on the page and it feels like kind of a weird trip through her mind and i find that you know exciting to read and fun to read but kind of i don't necessarily agree with it and i find her close to close to worthless when it comes to recommending a movie yeah recommending a movie there are some critics like i'll i'll read jonathan rosenbaum or jay hoberman or even roger ebert and i'll think huh that's an interesting perspective on the movie this makes me think of the movie in a new way i don't feel that with polly and kale i feel with polly kale it's more like oh that's an interesting performance and jonathan rosenbaum i feel that when i read his work i go oh wow this movie sounds great and then i'll watch it i'll be like ah man this movie is not for me because you're a man of the people (laughs) And at the same time, though, I don't disparage the review or essay that he wrote, and I can see his point of view. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the other thing about Pauline Kael that we should address is that she was considered... Her her strength wasn't so much about writing about directors, and it particularly wasn't writing about film technique. She 
She famously said, that doesn't interest me at all. Good technique is not art. Yes. Uh, But she was great writing about actors. So, for instance, of Robert Mitchum, she said, she called him, this great bullfrog with the puffy eyes and the gut that becomes an honorary chest. (laughs) Well, she has a a turn of phrase. Isn't that just beautiful? And here's, I'd like to read this kind of longer passage about Meryl Streep. Uh, this is Pauline Kael reviewing Sophie's Choice, and she famously didn't like Meryl Streep very much. And she writes, Streep is very beautiful at times, and she does amusing, nervous bits of business, like fidgeting with a furry boa, her fingers twiddling with our heartstrings. She has, as usual, put thought and effort into her work, but something about her puzzles me. Is it possible that as an actress, she makes herself into a blank and then focuses all her attention on only one thing? The toss of her head, for example, in Manhattan, or her accent here? Maybe by bringing an unwarranted intensity to one facet of a performance, she in effect decorporealizes herself. This could explain why her movie heroines don't seem to be full characters, or why there are no incidental joys to be had from watching her. That's some good writing. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then there are times, I'll read one more passage. There are times when, in wrestling with a movie, I said it's fun to watch her wrestle with a movie because it's a great performance. And sometimes I'll read her reviews and think, oh, you know, it's as if this movie inspired great writing separate from the movie. So talking about um, a important cinema club favorite, Tim Burton's Batman. (laughs) Yes. She writes, In Batman, the movement of the camera gives us the sensation of swerving by radar through the sinister nighttime canyons of Gotham City. We move swiftly among the forbidding, thickly clustered skyscrapers and dart around the girders and pillars of their cave-like underpinnings. This is the brutal city where crime festers, a city of alleys, not avenues. And I read that, it's like, that's, I that's, saw Batman. It's like, that's better than the movie. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's a problem. Where yeah. You see Tim Burton's Batman, you go, I don't remember that part. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's just such a beautiful piece of writing inspired by the movie. We can't end this discussion about criticism without talking about one of the critics I love to read, who is still writing today, whose opinions I find pretty much worthless. Lights, camera, Jackson. <laughs> David Thompson. Oh, I, I am not a fan. Um, who who wrote the, um, what is it called? The Encyclopedia of Cinema? Uh, the Biographical Dictionary of Film. Where he goes, actor, directors, writers, and just writes facts and then his own opinion about them. Well, he'll write these kind of like little prose poems about them. <laughs> but they're so great when you're talking about writing. Like, the most famous one that me and Will talk about all the time is his entry on Bruce Lee. Well, I don't know. if This, this might not be famous about anyone except us. Yes. Uh, he writes about how he doesn't like violence in cinema and the way that Bruce Lee kind of um, glorified it. And then in the final sentences, he goes, maybe it's because 9-11 just happened. No, no, he, he writes, isn't it interesting that after weeks of procrastinating on writing this entry, I'm writing it right after 9-11. <laughs> and I think that is such an awful thing to say. Yep. <laughs> but I think David Thompson is a bunch of purple prose that says nothing. So he, you think that he's the hollow, empty version of Pauline Kael. Yes, I do. And uh, I I once read, uh, he wrote this biography of Nicole Kidman that became kind of notorious at the time it came out because it was basically kind of like a mash note to Nicole Kidman. And it was kind of a, a, a meditation on how he had a crush on Nicole Kidman. Ugh. So I read it out of morbid curiosity. And it's utterly creepy. It's, <laughs> it's just a disgusting book. Uh, so... Next week, what are we watching, Will? Uh, we're watching Ed Wood. Oh, the Tim Burton movie? I'm excited! Nope. What? We're watching films by the real Ed Wood. Now, you love Ed Wood more than Orson Welles? No, but I love Ed Wood. Like, he's, he's definitely in my pantheon of directors who I'm very interested in. 
And so what are we going to be watching? We're watching Glenn or Glenda. He has 1953 Plea for Tolerance for Sexual Diversity and Plan 9 from Outer Space, the so-called worst film of all time. And I have to admit that I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space a long time ago, and I haven't seen any of his other films. Well, time to explore. <laughs> for people who are like, oh, I don't know, Ed Wood. Are you just are you guys just going to make fun of him like you did on that Christmas episode? No, we're going to do a contrarian choice. Uh, we're going to argue that he's interesting. I don't know what we're going to do. Who cares? <laughs> you can argue that he's interesting. I think he's interesting, yeah. But you're not going to argue that he makes good movies. Uh, you would have to be an insane person to say no, that. No, but I think there's something kind of beautiful about his films. There's a uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams quality to his movies. His movies are very evocative of the underside of L.A. at the time. All right, all right. Save all your stuff for the next episode. We want him to tune in. This is the cliffhanger. Will Will Sloan survive? Yes. No, no, we won't. <laughs> no, we, I won't. <laughs> yeah, I we all know. die, Will. That's I don't what happens. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm trying to do a Batman 66 style cliffhanger. Oh, that's great for our Pauline Kale episode. <laughs> My name's Justin the Clue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs>